What is up, everybody? Mark on the mic here. Across from me virtually, I have Pat Reeve from Driven TV and a host of other notable content platforms over the over the years. Pat, you've been in the game for a really long time, I guess from, a, you know, figuratively and literally a very, very accomplished hunter. And uh, I guess today we'll say the pressure is on because we are talking about hunting pressure for whitetails. Pat, you've got your own personal Midwest whitetail paradise. You've hunted whitetails, you know, probably everywhere under the sun on other piece, other on a lot of other folks' pieces of private land. And uh, yeah, today we're talking about pressure. How do you manage it on your own place? How do you maybe uh, manage it uh, with uh, neighboring landowners? You know, are you, can you use their pressure, you know, as part of your hunt strategy? Can you, uh, you know, work together, uh, you know, uh, regarding pressure as part of your hunt strategy? But, uh, Pat, thanks for joining us this morning. It's just, it's always a, a pleasure to chat with you and, and uh, looking forward to talking about uh, the topic of pressure. <laughs> hey, man, glad to join you guys. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to that, that's for sure. Hey, I live in Minnesota. It's uh, the classic state for hunting pressure. You know, I mean, it seems like I was just saying this the other day. It seems like everybody in my local community hunts <laughs> in in their surrounding areas. So, yeah, our deer feel you know and feel a lot of pressure throughout the hunting season and even beyond. And uh, we can talk. We're going to talk about the off season pressure as well. But yeah, we you know we deal with it uh, on a daily basis. It sometimes just gets to me because, you know, pressure a lot of times is something you can't control when it's coming from an outside source. But then there's also the pressure that you apply to, you know, your own hunting properties by yourself. And so we got to pay attention to that as well. So, you know, pressure isn't generally just always from the neighbor. It, it could be the stuff that you're applying or, you know, putting on the deer. The deer. So, yeah, you got to pay attention to the details. That's always really what's made me successful over the years is, you know, being able to be very detail oriented where like I'm not going to put too much pressure on my deer and bump them off or educate them and turn them in more in nocturnal deer. So, you know, it's it's a tricky deal when it comes to hunt whitetails. They're they're master at their own game and they live out there 24/7 and you know, they, they know when somebody's around, I mean, they can sense it. So, you know, being very sneaky and trying to get in there and being undetected is the key to success. Gotcha. Are there things you can do or are there things that you do to manipulate the landscape, you know, from uh, maybe it's a, a, a cover or bedding or food where you're kind of manipulating the landscape to allow yourself to hunt it more and apply more pressure, but so the deer maybe aren't necessarily feeling that pressure? Because, I mean, I think that's one thing. You, you, if you have a place, you're like, oh, I've got this amazing place. I want to hunt it. You're like, I don't want to blow it up. I don't want to burn it out. But I love hunting. I want to hunt it as much as I can and and maybe maximize, uh, you know, an early opportunity perhaps. You know what? You hit the nail on the head. Absolutely, you can do it. It's just how you set it up. And, of course, not every farm is conducively set up because of access points or whatever that you can get in there and stay undetected. But there's things that you can do to really put the odds in your favor and basically make it to where you can stay undetected throughout the entire season and not put that pressure on deer. And that's, that's probably one of the key components to what we do 
to make us very successful in the field. And when we go in and set up a farm, you know, the first thing we do is try to, uh, we, you know, we get to know the farm, we get to, you know, put boots on the ground, we walk it, we get to look at it from a topography standpoint and understand how the deer are traveling it, learn the trail systems, learn the buck trail systems and figure out the bedding areas, you know, because the bedding areas are so key to knowing where those, you know, where those deer bedding, we'll, we even build bedding areas specifically to basically change the pattern of the deer as well to get them into certain spots. And we'll talk about that here in in a minute or two, but, uh, you know, once we determine where the bedding areas are, where we can put the food, how we can access it to come in and stay, you know, undetected, you know, using the wind, using the topography to, you know, hide you or to, you know, basically diminish your sound or your approach. And, and that's huge as well. But, uh, you know, we want us, we want to set the farm up in the right way. And I, I just got on setting a farm up down in Houston County. That's a couple thousand acres. And we did that that farm that, you know, we started with a raw piece of land that was, you know, extensively hunted before, but it wasn't, it wasn't set up in the proper manner because these guys were just coming in with four wheelers and, and shutting them off and walking to, you know, a blind that they had out in the middle of the field and they just didn't see a whole lot. So we talked about access points and, you know, if you're going to hunt a stand, this is the hill road you're going to use. You're not going to use another hill road where they're going to hear you coming. You're going to backdoor them, so to speak, and stay undetected. And if, you know, if you have the luxury, use an electrics. Um, you know, electrics has been a game changer for us to, to access in, you know, if you have a, a long distance to, even if you have a short distance, I mean, it seems like walking is very intrusive versus, uh, you know, riding. Uh, we use Rambo e-bikes is the, the brand that we use, but we've, we use e-bikes and we also use Polaris electric, uh, Rangers. And, uh, that's just, that's really been a big deal for us because now like I have a, a farm right next to where I live here that, that I've, had for 10 years and that's a big long ridge system and I have I have two access points but I generally use the one access point from the south and I can with any north wind go in and drive that electric almost all the way through that entire ridge system without ever being detected because it's quiet the deer even if they're bedded they just watch you go by they're like what are you (laughs) yesterday I had a buck watch me and I think he was up just feeding on acorns and he just looked at me as I drove by and he's like what is that and he didn't hear it so he was studying us and as long as we didn't stop we just went on and he just went on his normal business so that again that's pressure if I can promise you if I would have drove a four-wheeler in there a gas engine four-wheeler he would have not even been there when we got there because he would have heard us coming and got out of there so you know, paying attention to those, how, you know, what you're using to, to approach, um, you know, or get into those spots, staying undetected, coming around from the backside, keeping the wind in your favor. That's really been the game changer for us. And we've done other things as well. 
I know guys that have farms. I have farms that are just like this that are bottom access, and the and a lot of your food plots and stuff are on the bottom of these ridges because we live in the bluff country, right, in the Midwest here. It's not flat like um, some parts of Iowa or Illinois and Kansas. So uh, the deer know how to survive, believe me. They, you know, I always said that when I used to guide in Buffalo County. Buffalo County's, you know, very ridgy, and you know, the topography is is the driftless area. So those deer are tricky because they know where to bed to detect danger. You know, they bed with the wind at their back and then they can see anything coming from below. So um, fooling them at that game is tough. And if you're going to hunt the bottoms, which can be pretty effective, if you know, especially like right now, you know, last couple of days we've had super high winds, the deer are going low. Um, but um, you got to put something in there that keeps you out of eye shot of a deer. And, uh, what I mean by that is, you know, if, if we have the luxury, we'll plant corn, um, because it becomes a food source as well. Um, we use the corn as a travel barriers into kind of a, a pocket where we might have a, a green plot or a brassica plot. And we can sneak along that corn and get in there all the way through that valley. And they're not going to, as they're bedded up there, especially when the leaves come off the trees, they're not going to see you. Or the other thing we've really done, um, and I've done this with all of my plots, is screen them with miscanthus grass. Um, it's, a, it's a grass that gr- grows back every year, super tall, you know, grows 12, 15 feet at least, and uh, thickens up and that becomes a big barrier. So as I walk, even, you know, when a deer's out, even if he's in the plot, you know, when you walk up there, you can get all the way into your blind pretty much undetected and they're, they're feeding right there. And you, you know, the blinds on the backside of the grass, you just, you you can walk right through the open for a mile and they'll never see you because of that screen. And, uh, those screens have just become kind of another way to to not put pressure on your deer. Same way with getting out, you know, when the deer are out in the, in the plot, you can slip out of there quietly and they can't see you. And if you're, you know, and if you're very quiet, you know, they'll never detect you. And you, of course, you come back and you hunt them again the next day and they, they never feel the pressure. If they never feel the pressure, the thing is, and you're not, you're not leaving your scent there because you're coming in from the backside they, it keeps your hunting fresh. And that's one way to, you know, be able to hunt your properties and keep doing what you do and be able to go over and over again and hunt, be basically unpressured deer. And, you know, they never, they never know they're being hunted. Dude, I love it. This might be, you know, maybe this is the impossible task, right? But if your access is from, you know, lower, and like you said, in that bluff country type stuff, but you want to hunt some of that upper stuff where, like you said, those deer are bedded up there. They're on those points. You know, they can see everything below, below them. You know, they've got the wind at their back. They got, you know, they got, you know, their backside covered. Have you figured out a way to like get up there undetected and go like, yep, I'm going to hunt those deer that are up there? Uh, yeah, you bet. I mean, there's ways. There's always a way. You know, sometimes it's to the extreme where you hire a bulldozer, you build a new road system that comes up from the backside of the ridge and, you know, you got a different access point. That's kind of extreme, very costly. Or the other thing is, just let's just say that you have, you know, a bottom access and there's no other way besides gutting it. 
I would call it just going up right through the area where you think they're going to be bedded on on them points. They're going to de- hear you or detect you. You got to be a little bit more careful. Of course, for my for me, I would go up there more in a more of a weather situation where I would go if it's windy. Um, they're not going to detect you as easy, or especially if it's like snowing, sleeting, raining. All those uh, weather elements take their senses and diminishes their sensors so they don't detect you unless you're close. So um, use the weather patterns that I use those a lot when I'm hunting low. If I got to walk through an open and stay, you know, be out visible or, you know, where they could possibly see me, of course, uh, snow or I shot a great big buck years ago doing that, walking up a big valley. I was hunting with uh, John Redmond, a nose jammer and on his property and he had a he had a food plot back tucked in a valley, but they could see it coming every time. So I waited for it to snow. I snuck all the way into that food plot. And when I was snowing and, and got set up and that buck came right out and I smoked him. And I know he was bedded within, you know, where he could see it because it was late season. And, you know, late season, as late season goes, the buck, the deer generally bed a little closer to the plot. So um, they're even harder to get in on than they are early season. But early season, you know, right now, or here in September and October, you got leaf cover. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are in your favor. Once those leaves come off the trees and, and it becomes way more open, your sound travels better through the open canopies versus you know a leaf leaf or vegetation uh, situation. So yeah, I, you know, and I also use topography as as a good travel barrier as well. I remember. One time hunting, with, it was Greg Miller and I, and we're hunting down in Iowa late season. And these deer were all coming. It was over in the western side, um, right on the Nebraska border, and we we're sitting there hunting. And, and it was the coolest approach because this guy would drop us off on the road, and we would walk. We would instantly, when we got off the side of the road, drop into this washout, and we would walk this drainage wash out all the way up and we would crawl up the bank in um, right into the blind while deer would be feeding all around in this kind of horseshoe food plot and they never had a clue and now those washouts are just like money I love using those I mean especially when they're dry obviously if they're not they got, got a lot of water in but they keep you out of it basically buffers your sound, any sound you might make, you know, unless they're standing right on the edge of the washout, they, they don't even hear you and they don't certainly see you. So yeah, we would slip in there, crawl right up in the blind and deer would just be feeding, had no clue. And so I learned a lot from those situations over the years. And, you know, there's, I'm sure there's places where people are listening. They're going, ha ha, I could do that to mine, you know? And I like using those those berms and um, drainages and stuff where I can just pop up and get right into my blind or my stand situation and then be ready to hunt and the deer have no no clue they're being hunted. And it's the same with, you know, of course, leaving as well. Yeah, exactly. And that provides an opportunity to, to not only get in but leave. And man, I've just, you know, hunted a number of places over the years where, like, you can get in, but then the leaving is, like, that's when you feel like you're really burning it out and blowing it up, and you're like, well, I'm going in, and I hope it's a good day, and I hope I, 
and successful because I don't know what it's going to be like <laughs> after today when I come out of this joint. So yeah, you know, I mean, that's rolling the dice. Um, I've done it a million times, and um, I learned a couple tricks that I mean. Hey, if you got the luxury of somebody coming in and blowing the deer out with a vehicle or an ATV or whatever, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great situation, right? That's a, that, that's going to keep your hunting fresh because that vehicle or that their presence versus you in the stand or whatever is gonna, it's still going to keep it fresh. They're, they're going to come back the next day and go, you know, they're not going to put two and two together. But if you get out of that stand and, uh, and that old doe, standing in that plot and she's watching you and and listening to you get out she guess what she's gonna do from there on out she's gonna make sure that nobody's in that stand she's gonna go downwind she's gonna visually look and if she's she detects you back in that stand she's gonna blow the deal by blowing all night long until you shoot her so <laughs> you know that that's the key i've learned you know if i don't have that luxury of somebody coming to pick me up and blowing out the the field or gutting it uh, and I got deer around. I I've learned a, a thing that really kind of still keeps my my pressure limited, and um, and it doesn't. It, it generally it's always worked for me. Um, you know, I know people like, oh yeah, I, I howl like a coyote. Well, guess what? They hear coyotes every day, so a coyote is something that kind of draws them in. You have to get those deer to leave, and you have to get them to leave in a quick hurry where they're not analyzing where the sound's coming from. You want to make sure that they are like bolting and, and not like trying to figure, figure out what is making that sound or where it's coming from. So, um, how I've done that. And and I learned this just basically by, by watching deer being chased by, by dogs is you want to bark at a very loud and a very fast cadence and if you've heard a deer being chased before by dogs, you would understand that it's a, it's, it's a very fast and a very high bark that, that is excited. I guess the dogs, when they feel like they're going to catch one is, you know, they're, so when a deer hears that, and it's just basically, I'll give you a kind of a quick, limited, low volume basis, but it's just, <laughs> I, I hit them where it's just, you know, and it is loud and it is fast and they, they don't pick up their head and, and they just leave and they leave. Now the field clears, of course, I try to be as quiet as possible, but they're not going to be standing around in the field looking where that's coming from. For the most part, if there is one that's very curious, I keep barking until they are leave because they will leave. And that blows that field off for the night. And it isn't to where they're studying where I'm coming from. So then I get down quickly and quietly as I can leave the field. And then the next day, generally back to normal. So that's one way that I've learned to kind of keep my hunting fresh if I have to, you know, do it myself. Man, I like that. You know, I imagine, you know, from the deer's perspective, they're going, there's a dog that's on a deer and it ain't me and it ain't going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... That's exactly right. No, I mean, and the other thing is, too, that I pay attention to a lot is just keeping my scent down. Because the more scent you put put in there, you know, the more a big big deer is going to pay attention to that. I mean, you're, the immature deer, eh, they'll walk right over your trail and not even smell it, a fresh trail. But your scent pressure is also 
you know, a key component to keeping your hunting fresh. So you, you're not leaving a lot of scent. Of course, I wear uh, lacrosse rubber boots. I, I mean, I've always wore rubber boots for the most part when I hunt just because the rubber boots keep your scent, you know, contained and, and not out there. And then I spray them down, you know, I mean, there's a million different scent sprays out there use HS stuff. And I spray my boots well and my pants down. So anything that, and I don't like to, I avoid touching the brush. If I'm going through any brush, I don't want to touch it physically because I'm sure that you've been in the woods where you can see, you know, a deer back trailing or just following your tracks and, And then I spray, a lot of times I'll use nose jammer on my boots as well because the nose jammer is a vanilla-based scent cover. And, uh, you know, when they smell that, they they don't, it's not like they smell a human. They go, hmm, what is that? That's kind of unusual. But then they just smell it for a little bit and then they move on. It doesn't alarm them. So it helps cover my tracks. And that's the way I first started using and testing it is it's just basically on my trails. So um, I pay attention just to my keeping my scent minimized when I go in there. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, of course, it keeps that pressure low. And that's kind of the key when you're when you're going after them. Now, I've been hunting a buck the last three days here in Minnesota because I got limited time. And I think that this is a, you know, a good topic of of discussion is talking about time because time management is almost more important to a deer hunter for many reasons than anything. So, and it is for me as well. I mean, time's our biggest asset and, uh, you know, we only have limited time because we're busy throughout the season, whether we just got back, you know, from moose hunting in the Yukon and now we're, uh, you know, ready to go to Kansas because we got dates locked in with an outfitter in Kansas. So going on to Rawhide and uh, hunting uh, with Lexi and, and John and them. And I am not, I, I have just a few days here at home. So I have to hunt when I'm at home and I got terrible weather pattern in right now, low pressure, high winds, and it's just bad recipe for trying to shoot a big buck. And you know, it's been great up until I came home and then I'm starting this turn. So <laughs> what do you do? Do you not go? Well, a lot of guys don't, again, have this this time management thing. You know, I mean, you they only have like a week off or whatever during the rut or pre-rut or whatever. And, and their wife's got all these other things on the docket that they need to do. So they only have limited days. You got to maximize those days. And I mean, obviously, if you got a piece of property that you're going to be hunting and you go, well, I could go tonight, but I only got a north wind set on this plot. And I know this buck's coming in because I'm getting cell cam pictures of them, but the wind's bad. And what do I do? Should I, you know, just gamble and use scent elimination and think I'm going to fool them? Mm, Most times better than not it isn't gonna exactly work in your favor and they gamble and roll the dice and then they go in there and they don't see them well guess what the bucks detected them somehow probably before he came in and the deal's over and most likely it might be over for the entire season on that deer so here's what i do i make sure i have lots of options and if i got a spot set up 
I make sure that I don't get myself in a bad situation by just having a north wind set. I set a spot for a north wind and a and an opposite wind. Because now, even if the wind switches and I'm sitting in there and all of a sudden I got a wind shift and, and it goes to south for the rest of the night, I can get down and go over and sit in the south one on the other side of the plot and I have two sets. So kind of keeping those options you know, more so open and, and uh, having options to go to as a secondary is, is, is vital, and especially if you have limited time and, and uh, you know, might cost a little bit more to buy another set of stands and sticks and stuff, but it definitely pays big dividends. Yeah, I mean, that time thing, you got to go when you can go, right? And it's like, if you had all season and you were hunting this property, those might be days where you're like, you know what, I'm, I am going to back off. I am, I'm not going to go in, but like, like you said, if those are the days you have to hunt, you're not going to not hunt. So figuring out a way to do it is, is going to be your best option. You know, with, with that also, Pat, like, let's say you are in that situation where you kind of can pick and choose your days, right? When on a property, are you going to push your chips in and take those risks, you know, be, be a little bit more risk, you know, high risk, high reward sort of deal. Yeah. Great question. Because that's one everybody's presented with, right? <laughs> Here's the thing. You know, if you got that luxury where you can kind of go and come when you want and, and you don't have a limited schedule, you go when the timing's right. I think that that's why some of these guys are such great accomplished deer hunters, like a Mark Terry Drury, these guys that shoot big deer consistently, they got, of course, they got great properties, but they also hunt very smart and they don't generally gamble on bad timing situations. So they'll, they, of course, they rely on their intel, you know, and they, they're going to rely a lot on their cameras telling them when this deer's on a pattern and when they really, you know, when they sense that that deer is coming out daylighting then and what time he's coming out and kind of the situation, they, of course, will wait for that great weather situation to move in. Maybe it's a high pressure, cool day where it's just like, okay, the deer, I feel like the deer are really going to move because it's been windy or it's been bad weather for several days. The deer haven't done nothing because my cameras aren't showing it. And all of a sudden, the weather change is coming in where there's a front and a high pressure system pushing in, deer are going to be on their feet. I guarantee you. And that's when you want to get yourself into those situations. Just of course you're relying, of course, a lot on your Intel. You know, I do that as well. I don't go in and hunt a water hole unless I have a deer that's daylighting on, on that water hole. And I know that the wind is going to be in my advantage and maybe, I mean, I ain't going to go in there on a, on a rainy day, you know, because I know that the, deer activities are going to be very limited. So, especially on that water source. So, you know, but a, a high pressure day that's been dry for a period of time. And now I got a deer that's coming into a water hole. There's a high chance that he's going to repeat that process. And I learned this a long time ago, hunting with my good old buddy, Stan Potts. He told me this law. He says, I'll tell you right now. He says, if a big buck does something once, he'll most likely repeat the process shortly after. And he's, and he's right because a deer like humans, you know, they they get into a pattern, especially as they get older. They get, it's not that they're lazy. They, they, they don't do as much, that's for sure. 
as much as they did when they were younger. Um, but they're very smart because they've learned <laughs> over the years, you know, whether it's their travel pattern, it's whether, you know, how, how they go about their business. But if you can get on that pattern and figure out that pattern, you can definitely benefit and take that big deer, you know, out. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of a key. If, if you just, I pay attention to the weather and watch my, my cameras and get myself into that hunting situation when the timing is right. Gotcha. And that timing is really dictated by all those factors. And I guess, you know, you could definitely throw in the timing of, you know, the rut or things like that, but not, not necessarily like, oh, I'm, nope, I'm waiting for the first two weeks of November. You're, you're looking at all those factors and going, hey man, like the middle of October is, you know, I've got all this intel. The time is right. Like, I think I can go for it. Yeah. Let's talk about that quick. Cause that's such a, that's a, that's the other thing about timing. Um, it's not just the daily timing. It's, it's kind of like what, what's going on out there with the deer, where they're at in their, in their stages, you know, throughout that hunting season, because they go through all these stages and phases, I guess the Drury's call it phases, but, uh, I like hunting a deer before they get really into rut, because once the rut comes, it takes them out of their patterns. And, um, and they're just harder to hunt. Are they more vulnerable? Certainly, because they're chasing does and they throw a little caution to the wind. But I like hunting a deer because I rely on my intel. I like hunting them on food patterns. And uh, and that way, you know, you're relying on them repeating that pattern. And, um, of course, early season, you know, it's all evening hunting, you know, for the most part, anywhere you go because you're being able to slip in there by getting in while they're in their bed and then getting set up on that food source and letting them come to you. That's, of course, keeping the fresh, the hunting fresh. If you're very aggressive and sneaky, well, you can sneak into an acorn flat and stuff like that. But generally, in in the Midwest here, especially in Minnesota, these deer around here, they bed and they feed almost in the exact same foot tracks. Because... <laughs> They can. Um, there's food availability everywhere. They don't have to go anywhere to feed. So, you know, it's hard to shoot them right now. That's why we call it the October lull because they, the deer are just on acorns for the most part, especially after this high winds, you know, that knocks all the acorns out of the trees. They'll just sit and gorge themselves on acorns and they, they don't care how good a bean plot or green plot you got. They're just going to eat acorns for the most part. And that gets tough because Getting in and getting set up on a deer during that period can be very tricky because they're just, there's little to no movement. They don't have to move very far to go eat. So I, you know, instead of being super aggressive like that and wrecking my hunting, I let them go back into that food pattern that I have that controls their movements. And uh, I learned this a long time ago too uh, from a guy in Illinois, an outfitter down there. He told me, well, I went to his farm and I hunted with him and he's like, he, he sets me up on a, on a field edge in the morning at first light. I'm like, hmm, this is odd because aren't we going to sit in the timber? That's where the deer are. He goes, oh no, I never hunt my timber. And I'm like, what? He goes, the deer, that's where the deer live. He goes, I don't hunt those deer in the timber ever. I never go in the timber. I go in there once a year to shed hunt, and that is it. Outside of that, the timber is their sanctuary. I'm like, well, this is going to be, 
you know, a goat rope. <laughs> yeah. I'm, this is going to be a buzzkill. I ain't going to shoot nothing in the morning, especially. I thought, well, they'll come out in the evening. So I'm sitting there. I shot a 185 about an hour after it got daylight, and the deer was crossing the wide open field, kind of feeding his way along. And I'm like, so I started kind of thinking about it, and I saw a lot of deer as well. And I'm thinking, what makes this place so different? So a buddy of mine had another Illinois property, and he's like, man, he goes, I just don't see a lot of deer, you know. And I said, why don't you try this, which this other guy I hunted with. I said, don't quit hunting your timber. Quit being aggressive and going in your timber. Let that, because he didn't have a ton of timber before the neighbors started. So I said, let that be their sanctuary and start just hunting them on the edge. And, and, you know, in those food sources. And he started doing that. And he started killing them. Every year it got better and better and better because he put less pressure on the deer by diving in, being aggressive. And that's where the deer go. But you can, you can hunt them. I mean, his situation where he had spots where there'd be a little saddles and stuff where the deer would come out of one section of timber and just cross through a little saddle going over to another section there was just like lots of great opportunities to, to get in there and hunt. He kept us hunting fresh and, and, uh, you know, quit, quit being so aggressive and going in the timber. If you're going to go in the timber, wait till the timing is right. Go in there during the peak of the rut, get into a bedding area and then stay all day. And that's the way you can hunt that timber. If you're going to be, you know, like a guy that has to be in the timber. So, you know, that's, that's some of the things I've learned and applied to my properties as well. And hey, it's, you know, putting deer, big deer on the ground. That's kind of the key, right? Dude, that's, uh, that's the goal every year. It doesn't happen every year, but that's, that's definitely, <laughs> that's what keeps us going. Right. Pat, obviously properties, every shape, every shape and size, right? So how would your strategy, your pressure strategy differ? Uh, let's say, you know, you got a person like I mean, here in Wisconsin, we got a lot of people, man, I got my, I got my 40 acre piece, right. You know, you know, and, and 300 acres would, you know, in contrast would be a pretty darn big piece for a person here. What does your strategy look like or does it change depending on how much ground you have? Definitely. You know, I mean, that's the trickiest part to the whole equation. You know, if a guy owned a couple thousand acres, you're, you're going to have the deer that are always going to be residential on your property and never going to leave your property for the most part, especially if it's, you know, a particular property that, you know, encompasses a river or has road systems around it where the deer just feel like, Hey, you know, it's a one big block, but in, in Minnesota and I guarantee in Wisconsin, you're always going to have that stinking neighbor that is hunting you, mashing in and hunting you aggressively on the, on the fence line and that can mess up definitely hunting situations. And believe me when I say this, because I'm a TV hunter and they see, of course, everybody sees my hunts on TV. They think that I own the golden ticket and oh, I shoot all these big bucks, you know, just magically that come off my property. So they think if they mash in and sit on the fence lines and you should see it, you would be, it's pretty comical. They have blinds, they have hay bales, they have everything under the sun all the way around my property because they, and they do kill them. They, you know, last year they killed a 190 right Ooh. on, they walked right out into a wide open pasture chasing a doe and the guy popped him with a shotgun. That's, that can happen. Am I disgruntled about it? Well, I'm not really happy about it. They shot a nine-year-old that 
that I was after. But you know what? That's hunting. Hey, you know, you can't be mad at a guy for, I mean, it's not my property, right? So, you know, if the deer gets off my property, that that happens and it's going to happen to everybody. So what do you do? You know, I mean, how, how do you curb that issue? And I, I've, there's many things, uh, you know, that a guy can do to try to keep those deer, you know, on that property. Uh, I've talked to Lee Lakoski several times on how he does it down there in Iowa. And, and he's got a method. I, I've, I'll be the first one. I mean, I've had to high fence a neighbor out once because he was shooting all the deer out in the, in the wide open fields. And that's a very aggressive approach, but it curbed the problem. So, and he wasn't very happy about it, but that's just, that's, that's an extreme approach. I know people that have had to do that a lot in Iowa. That's on a bad neighbor situation. Hopefully you can get, you know, along with your neighbors. Cause that's so important because if they're on the same page and they're after the same goals, even if your neighbor shoots a deer, a big deer, you, you know, maybe you, he was more or less on your property his entire life. And all of a sudden he drifted over there and he got shot. Hey, you know, maybe at some point you're going to shoot his deer, you know? So, you know, that, you know, kind of, it'll balance itself out be happy for the guy and stuff like that. But all too often in the, in this game, there's a lot of jealousy and animosity when it comes to deer. So it creates bad feelings, especially with neighbors and creates a lot of division. And, uh, and that's kind of tricky. So I just, yeah, I, this, just this year, that piece of property I'm managing down in, in Houston County, uh, we had a, a three-year-old last year that had a lot of potential. We had a sheds and he went, he blew this year as a four-year-old. He put on probably 60 inches and he was, uh, he went into like a 185 with stickers and trash starting everywhere, but he had a big typical frame. And, and I'm like, man, if he can get to five, we are, this deer is going to be probably a 200 incher because he just had that potential, that genetic makeup. Right. And, uh, you know, I talked to, um, I talked to the landowner and said, can you communicate with your neighbors? Because absolutely we got, you know, we're on the same page and everything is good. And the guy went and stuck the, like, like the first week he went and stuck the deer, the neighbor did and shot him and I'm, and and posted it all over. Oh, I got a 185 and, you know, look at this deer. And I'm thinking, do you understand what you just did to your genetics and what, you know, what that deer could have been next year. And I'm sure he was happy with a 185, but he would have been a lot more happier with a 200 incher and a 185 that bred all the does. So, you know, it's really hard to get everybody on the same page, but if you got a good neighbor and it's after the same goals, you guys can really benefit by each other doing this, practicing the same thing and, and laying off of those, especially those up and comers. And, you know, right now I'm working with, uh, you know, the guys, the Matthews guys have a piece of property next to ours and, and, um, sending them pictures, sharing pictures back and forth about certain deer saying, Hey, this deer looks to me like he's got great potential. He's a six by six and he looks to be only three and a half, possibly four He's young. And I said, you know, we're not going to shoot him. you know, make sure you guys don't. And they're like, absolutely. So now like, unless that deer gets completely, off kilter and goes to a different place, he's going to survive because I know that they aren't going to shoot him. So that's kind of the key, you know, getting those deer to that, that older age class. And, uh, 
and just working together to try to manage it. And, you know, that in Minnesota and stuff, where we have such small parcels. Heck, I started with 20 acres right here. You know, I mean, that, that's where I started. It's just 20 acres. And you don't have to have big chunks of property to, to you know, shoot big deer. But at 20 acres, I did everything I could on that piece of property when I started with it to draw in deer. And of course, I counted a lot on pulling deer from the neighbor because I only had 20 acres. I had a few residential doe groups that lived there, you know, consistently. But for the most part, I was shooting drifters, you know, and, and bucks that would come in. So I uh, I created a food source that always was going to be plentiful for the deer and a water source. Built a pond and, and we started shooting deer there. And of course, I started you know, acquiring land and built, you know, I'm over 200 acres now on that same piece of property that's all conjoining now. So, you know, it, it all kind of serves itself. I know a guy, uh, uh, I'm sure in the big buck circle, everybody's heard of a guy named Spook Span. He shot a lot of big deer and, uh, and sometimes he shoots them on a half acre track, you know, a couple acres at most in hunts of suburban areas and stuff. But, if that half acre track is, is nestled up beside a state park that has allowed no hunting for many years. And you know, that one acre track has got a food source on it. Guess where the deer coming off of that, out of that state park, because there's no food source there planted for the deer generally. And they smoke some, he smokes some giants. And, uh, a lot of people pay attention to those little, those little pockets that, you know, can be, you know, even suburban areas that can grow big deer and hold big deer. And then your property is adjoining and you can benefit from those non-huntable areas, whether even if it's, you know, the neighbor that don't allow hunting, you know, then become refuges. So you don't always have to have that thousand acres or that 2000 acres like you see on TV. For sure. For sure. And I mean, I think what you're talking about there is, pressure related from, you know, areas that have, you know, for one reason or another, they got a lack of pressure, right? So you can go in and and capitalize on the fact that there might be people in there, there might be people in there constantly, but the deer are accustomed to that. You know, they're seeing a person, it ain't nothing new to them. And those people are generally walking through casually, they might be talking loud, but they're not hunting the deer And and the deer they can they, they can know feel that. that pressure. They know. <laughs> oh, yeah. They know the difference. Actually, I mean, even a, an example of that. We were uh, I was on a buddy's property just this last week, and uh, and we were engaging a little bit of disc golf. Pat, a little bit of disc golf. I don't I don't do it very often, but he's got a little course set up. There's enough room that occasionally there's a deer on the property, right? You know, and we were walking through, being noisy, you know, just having having a good time, whatever, and we got to a spot where for one reason or another we stopped and everybody got quiet but we hadn't been like we'd been like talking loud you know earlier or whatever when we stopped and got quiet a deer got up and blew out that was probably like 20 feet away right but it was only when we stopped and got quiet that that deer was like i am out of here you know he he did he tolerated everything else except that you know so it was kind of interesting where you know it's like he wasn't nervous until he felt like, you know, potentially some, you know, predator, like, you know, human, whatever was onto him, you know, which we weren't, Yeah, you know, but. Yeah. You never act. That, that's the key to being a hunter, good hunter. You never act like a hunter. You got to act like a golfer, or, you know, somebody that's throwing a Frisbee. So you're, you want to, 
I mean, Eve, I pay attention to the little things sometimes where, yeah, you know, walking through the woods, you don't act like a predator or walk like a predator because they, they pay attention to those, those sounds. And a lot of times, you know, we overthink that or we don't think about it enough to where, um, you know, we want to, I, I remember one time when I was guiding back in the day in Buffalo County at, at Tom Enterbo's place up there. And uh, this guy came, I don't know, I think he was from Georgia. We called him Four-Wheeler Dave because he earned that <laughs> name when he was there. Um, it was his first hunt he ever really went on. And, and uh, he, of course, hunted a lot down in, in Georgia. He, he come up and and I said, well, hop on the four-wheeler. I'll run you up to the top of the ridge here. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. He goes, we, we're going to walk. He said, I, I don't get on four-wheelers. I go, why? He goes, but we're going to blow all these deer out by the hair is coming. I was like, these deer hear this four-wheeler every morning. So I said, believe me. And he's like, oh, I really don't want to do it. I could sense the guy was really panicking that I was going to take a four-wheeler. And I said, all right, well, we'll do it your way. So we'll, let's just walk. So we walked in, he sat. Didn't see him a whole lot. Matter of fact, when we got close to the stand, I heard the deer run off. And uh, I'm like, oh, great, you know. So I said, tomorrow morning, we'll do it my way, see the difference. So the next morning, I took him in. Zach, conditions, same conditions. Took him in with a four wheeler. Of course, it was loud. And I waited for him to get all the way in the stand, give me a thumbs up as he's in the stand and pre dawn. And uh, it started getting light. And he said, I didn't even. I wasn't even an earshot, and he had deer all up underneath him. So he said, yeah, he says, uh, I think I'll use a four-wheeler more often. Of course, that those deer, kind of the point I'm making is those deer were conditioned that um, they were used to hearing a four-wheeler. So that conditioning is, is something that ranchers do, you know, farmers do all the time. You know, I know that deer can hear the difference between a white Chevy and see the difference between a white Chevy truck and a blue Ford. Because the sound of the exhaust, you know, the rancher that doesn't drive it, you know, the way it's driving, um, we we elk hunt and elk are same way. They they are smart, man. They can hear the difference. They hear that rancher every morning. They know he's not any danger. You know what do you do? You ask the rancher to give you a ride or figure out how to <laughs> how to steal his truck. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean. It's just one of them things where you just got to, you got to play the game and, uh, be, you know, smart. Um, you know, even just taking tractors and stuff like that, that they're used to can be, you know, sometimes extreme, but very effective. Yeah. I mean, I think, like you said, you're conditioning those deer to like saying, Hey, like off the top of your head, you're like, Oh man, this is loud. This is a super intrusive sound. But if it's part of their daily routine, it's not out of place. You start doing stuff that's out of place, boom, there's more pressure, you know? So, oh, yeah. man, Pat, I love it. I love it. I tell you what, uh, well, I'm out of questions for now. Actually, I've got a lot more that I probably could ask. But, uh, uh, yeah, I'm out of ammo, dude. I appreciate you sitting down and talking with us about this. It's definitely, um, you know, a very, very relevant subject. It's something that we deal with, you know, uh, as hunters a lot and a lot of really cool advice there. So thank you. Yeah, man. I, I, you know what? I tell this to everybody because it's so true. Every day I go in the woods, I learn something. Uh, and, you know, the minute you think you you got them figured out, they, they teach you something new. So, you know, it's it, it's part of the game you play. 
Uh, it's that chess game that, uh, you know, when I get beat by them, it just makes me dig my heels in and try <laughs> harder. And I don't like giving up. That's one thing that just, I mean, I, I'm not even a very patient person, but when it comes to shooting a big deer, I, I'm extremely patient because I know that that is a game that you play with those critters and, and they are, you know, the master at it. So beating them when they think that they're beating you is the funnest thing ever in the world, because I love it when you're, you know, they're closing in on your, you know, your setup and they're like, ha, oh, well, that hunter's not even here today. Cause I'm walking right in the wind and he's not, he's not here and I don't smell him and I don't see him. And all of a sudden you're sitting off the side of him and he walks right in and you double hug him and you go, I got you at your own game. And that's the, that's the funnest part for me because, you know, then you, you've outsmarted them and, you know, it's just, it's detail, paying attention to those details and stuff like that, that really, you know, wraps your tag around a big mature buck. And, um, you know, that's, that's why I like playing that game and it never gets old. You know, people always ask me, Hey, do you ever get sick of this? I'm like, never, because, you know, I love hunting them and, and, uh, and it's that challenge of that chess match that you play with them. So, um, and I, and I, I've got more enjoyment over the years now, just managing and, and setting up farms and watching my kids have success and stuff like that. And that, that's also came into play as well. Um, versus, you know, just me having the success over and over again. Um, you know, and of course the video has always been a big part of my, my application. So I've always, you know, I, I've never went in the woods without deer hunting in the woods since I've been a teenager without a camera. So I, I can't imagine not going in there cause I just love capturing those moments. They're all different. And, um, and I love having that to, to relive and my kids and my grandkids and all that, they'll relive those experiences forever because they're always, you know, captured. So yeah, that's, this is a fun game, man. Oh, dude, it's it's the best. And like you said, you're always learning, always trying to figure out. The game never ends. It's different every day. Like, you can't win at it. And it's like, you know, I mean, occasionally you win at it. But, like, ultimately, you know, they just they always have the upper hand. And, and that's, you know, I mean, that's that's why we love it so much. So, yeah. And, and like you said, on the video side, you know, talk about a library of stuff that you can go back and learn from and deer behavior that you have cataloged. And, you know, this hunt was like this. And it's like, okay, the weather was doing that. You know, like you said, you've got all those details cataloged and you can learn from them. Other people can learn from them. And uh, it's fun to watch, you know, as a deer hunter. I don't think any, you know, I love watching. I just love watching a deer video for the sake of watching a deer video. But there's always something to learn from somebody else at the same time. And yeah, and uh, and Pat, I mean, I think over the years, I know I have personally, and I think a lot of people have been able to, learn a lot of stuff from you like we did here today so yeah we just uh we we appreciate all the hard work and and uh all the times that you did jump into the tree with the camera well i'm gonna keep doing as long as i can and uh i'll probably eventually have to you know be in my wheelchair off off of some sort of handicap <laughs> blind system or something but uh you know what i mean that's i'm gonna hunt until i can't right till they put me under so you know, that's, that's the game and, um, I do it because I love it, not because I, I make a living at it. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a fun challenge. And like I said, you know, it's transformed for me, you know, for, from the old days to, to now. And so it certainly has, uh, certainly as the hunting world in general, um, 
man, I, we talked about this the other day is how hunters have become way more proficient and, and way better than they used to be mainly because a lot of their gear is, you know, gotten so much better versus the old, look at, look at just the boat, you know, the archery technology and, and then cameras. I remember <laughs> the day, I don't want to date myself. That's why I got so many gray hairs on my chin. But I remember <laughs> the day when I thought that we had hit the big time when we took a string and we pulled it out of a little t- timing device that had a digital clock and we strung it across a trail. And when a deer bumped that string, it would trip that clock and tell you when that that was tripped. And we were like, man, a deer came through here at 12.05 a.m. <laughs> That's why we're not seeing him. And we're like, we have got him figured out. We got this deer pattern. And of course, then, you know, eventually, you know, cameras came into play. And now it's like, yeah, you just look at your cell phone every morning I get up. And that's the first, you know, my first order of business is, is to dive into my camera and have a cup of coffee and, and look at my trail cameras and see, you know, the movements. But, you know, wow, you know, you, and, and people are like, well, you know, one thing I, I really bothers me is how um, the the states and um, the government has, has now jumped in and try to regulate uh, um, technology and make it, well, that's an unfair advantage. Hey, look, if you don't want to use a cell camera, don't use it. I mean, it's as simple as that if you think it's unfair. But don't banish the guy that does like using them. Maybe he enjoys watch looking at his cameras more than... But it's just, again, it's a jealousy thing. Oh, you know, that guy over there has been shooting all my elk or all my deer. And, and he uses those cell cameras and and I don't. And I, I, I like the old days, the old way, and that that's the way it was and you know, blah, blah, blah. Well... You know, traditionalists used to talk the same way, you know, recurve versus compound and all that stuff. It's like, hey, if you want to use a crossbow, use a crossbow. I mean, if you want to use a rifle, use a rifle. Anything that gets you outdoors and gets you hunting, I'm in favor of. And and quit limiting it to technology issues, you know, especially when the government steps in and starts taking away stuff. We're never going to get it back. So... You know, as hunters, you got to band together, stick together as far, you know, and, and support what we believe in and, and uh, not fight internally amongst ourselves. And, and you know, it's always going to go that way, right? I mean, heck, we're driving cars that don't even have engines anymore. They <laughs> have <laughs> batteries. So, you know, it's just the way it is. It's, it's you get with the, you know, lighted knocks should not be outlawed because they're not helping you shoot the deer they just help you recover the deer you know in my opinion so that's just uh that's just my two cents in 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 this world that i've been around for a while and and feel very passionate about and you know some hunters might not believe in that theory as much but hey we all got to support each other because we owe it to the the sport to continue and pass it on to our kids for sure for sure well maybe that can be our next podcast technology and hunting Where's, yeah, oh, where's the line? Uh, but uh, no, that's cool. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again, Pat. Awesome conversation. And uh, tis the season right now. It's October. Stuff's, uh, you know, things are starting to get real. So uh, good luck out there. I know you've got a bunch of hunts upcoming, and I'm sure the folks out there do as well. Maybe some of these tips will help. Hopefully they do. We'll catch you on the next one.